morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the January 4th, 2022 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, we have UCI sociology professor David Meyer returning to chart where we are as a nation January 4th, 2022, with his interests in social movements, political sociology, and public policy. He's our guy to break it all down one year after the insurrection in our nation's capital. We'll be right back after a station break. Thanks for staying with us. Welcome back to the show. My guest for the full hour is David Meyer, the man I like to go to for social movement protests. It's been very close to two two years ago when we last examined movements, social movements. So David's appointment at UCI as a professor of sociology and political science, planning policy and design professor at UCI, and whose previous appearance on the show addressed the Occupy movement and the movements we're looking at. It was it was almost two years. I mean, like within two days off. Your general interests are, areas of interest include social movements, political sociology and public policy, peace and war and social justice. Dave's mostly directly concerned with the relationships between social movements and the political context in which they emerge. So the, some among many of his publications, some of the recent ones are entitled The Resistance, The Dawn of the Anti-Trump Opposition Movement, and The Politics of Protest, Social Movements in America. David's commentary can be followed on his blog, Politics Outdoors. So Dave completed his Bachelor's of Arts and Literature at Hampshire College, his Ph.D. in Politics political science at Boston University. And he comes to us today from his home office in Irvine because UCI has gone virtual these next two weeks of the winter quarter. Welcome back to well, Ask a Leader, David Meyer. I'm glad to be with you, Claudia. Thank you. Thank you. Well, before we take the huge bite and chew on January 6th, I'd like to take a moment and check in with how you're doing, David, with all that you're juggling on professional and home fronts, and uh, here a community radio host has the gall to ask in the middle of your holiday break if you'd appear live today. How are you doing? I think professors are pretty well protected compared to lots and lots of people during this moment. Yeah. So I I really have, uh, I mean, I could whine about like, oh, masks are uncomfortable or something like that, or it hurt when they gave me an injection. But uh, I think UCI has protected us pretty well from most of the uh, difficulties of the pandemic over the last couple of years. I appreciate your having that pitch-perfect kind of understanding of how it's much harder. But we are all kind of cocooned around this university community. But So this is how, folks, we got to this interview. It maybe started with me. I'm going on a wild tear. I'm pulling every lever around me because I'm very concerned about the health of our republic. And I approached David's dean. I said, what are you doing? What can we do together? Where? And, you know, and then he, I mean, deans get too many emails per hour. So he did actually, he did answer my email. 
And uh, then he mentioned that there is a project underway at Social Sciences, and we'll get to that, but we're going to pull off this. It's not a scab, folks. It's just like it's a gusher. It's never scabbed over. January 6th, 2021. So I guess I would want to start with the biggest part of all this, the sort of the identity politics part. It's a, a way to look at this conservative nationalist movement taking ever more control of all three branches for those civics minded, you know, the legislative, the executive and the judiciary. I mean, all three. I'd argue we could look at a pie chart or take a look at a Venn diagram. Maybe if, if this is something that you find might be a helpful way for people to see how what's comprising this conservative national movement. If you have sort of sections of the pie or then a Venn diagram of overlapping where they're they're getting close to a circle at this point. What do you use? <laughs> I usually don't use Venn diagrams, but I think you're right to identify a bunch of uh, different, sometimes uh, contradictory strands that um, Trump was able to weave together for a uh, time and that are oddly not coming apart yet, but there's a libertarian strand, there's a social conservative strand, there's a white supremacist strand overlapping with the religious right, and for most of the last five, six years, this movement has been able to count on the support of uh, libertarian conservatives who are just interested in free markets. And there are all kinds of issues that tear at the unity among this um, loose coalition, most notably immigration, because business conservatives mostly like immigration. Um, and there's this ongoing battle of uh, who stands in front of this movement and how it's held together and what it stands for. But we've seen over and over and over again, and Trump understood this, that the the easiest way to promote unity among people who don't agree on much is to find enemies. And they've found enemies, and the enemies are usually described as the libs or the communists. And what do communists do? Well, you don't have to know about communism to be on this side. You just have to say, oh, it's um, people we don't like or people who oppose us. And it's disturbingly easy for um, conservatives to fall off the train. You know, so Liz Cheney is now an enemy. So Mitt Romney is now an enemy. Uh, that's not a very good answer to no, your that's question. A good, that's a, no, you know, that's a good who's answer. in this? It's, um, it's fluid and changing, and it should be changing faster than it has. So let me try this with you, David, is in the Venn diagram, and I, I don't know how, I'm going to put in the center where they all overlap. It's the boogeyman, and it's zero sum. Mm. So you're saying... Um, so all the, you're talking about the enemy. There's a boogeyman, whether it's a communist, it's a socialist, yeah, it's we a non-white. It. That's yeah. the boogeyman, and the zero sum. The zero sum is the, it's the, like the herd of elephants in the middle of the room. This Anything that we give to them is going to take away from me, and that construct just keeps working for the conservative movement. Well, such as it is, yeah, I think that's right. I think that, you know, to uh, threat is a really good mobilizer. Threat gets people anxious and engaged, and then you don't have to define alternatives either, except not them. So 
The, here's the irony of January 6, 2021. I mean, we can all remember what the COVID charts looked like. And that that was in the middle of the largest, most extreme spike at the time. That was a huge super spreader of all those people massing up around the eclipse and in and around inside the Capitol building. It seemed like it should have been. I, I don't know if anybody tracked that. Have you seen that? Did somebody well, track like the spread of uh, the virus then? Well, the only other irony is, though, that there were masked in, uh, participants because they were trying to mask their identities or trying to look scarier than maybe they would have been otherwise. <sighs> um, I, I think you want to go back to, to um, January 6th for something else and just remember how dramatic and disruptive that event was. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is part of what we're going to talk about. So, and the collateral damage too. It what happened on that day. It persists. I, I think that the the two movements, the ones that were intent on disrupting, as you're talking about, versus the the ones that were looking back and shocked. The ones that were so disruptive. How do you handle the fact they're so witless about the collateral damage that persists to this moment? There were hundreds of law enforcement people that are still maimed. We there were fatalities. But they're still processing the shock. They're still maimed physically, mentally. And there are members of Congress that are traumatized. And I, I don't know if you saw the, the coverage maybe a month or two after the insurrection. Is There were a lot of staff members that were mm. horribly traumatized, especially persons of color. So, so how do you think that they can be... It's the atmosphere of crisis. And so, you know, you see fire hoses in buildings all the time that say, in case of emergency, break glass. Nobody wants to break the glass, but if you convince somebody that it's an emergency, they bang away. And the uh, people who marched into the Capitol building or put their feet up on the desks of members of Congress, if you haul them out now, some of them are going to say, boy, I made a mistake. But the more common refrain, I suspect, is it's a moment of crisis. They're trying, they're, they're trying to destroy our democracy, so we had to stand up. And, you know, it's unfortunate, perhaps, that somebody was traumatized or that a police officer died or that some police officers claimed trauma. But, you know... You have, to, you have to break eggs if you're going to make an omelet, and we're in a moment of crisis, and we have to protect the republic, whatever that means. So the echo chamber gives them a, an opportunity to avoid all of this collateral damage that they incurred. And, and you're kind of giving the sort of um, the light touch of the what happened inside as far as, I mean, the, there were such crass things that were done inside the Capitol building. When I, you know, we were reading, and we don't know the full extent of it, but really some very um, unseemly. Um, there, there was viciousness and there was crudeness all over inside. That We'll never know the full story about how it was desecrated. Well, there's a lot that's going to come out. And um, there's been some great reporting on the event itself. Yes. The New York Times did a very long video. The Washington Post did a, did a long report. All of that stuff is worth looking at. And... Um, well, and Jamie, and, and, Congressman you know, Raskin like, used that video, right, in the second impeachment trial. Right. No, there's been, there's been like, something that's been more heavily produced, and uh, they've done backstory reporting on a lot of the people who were there. 
So, no, there, there's a lot of good reporting on the events that took place there. And, and are, are there, like, other desecrations that took place in the Capitol building, like somebody's office that was vandalized? I'm sure. I'm sure. But the bigger story, and, you know, you, you're right to point this out, is a bunch of insurgents tried to take over the Capitol building to stop the person who had lost the election from being forced to leave office. And they did a lot of damage in the process, and they viewed their opponents, their opponents like 80-year-old Nancy Pelosi, as monsters who are not worthy of any human respect. And this is a problem in democracy, right? I mean, democracy means that you have to deal with people you don't necessarily like or agree with some of the time, a lot of the time, all the time. And um, the answer for this insurgent movement is they're not people who are worth dealing with. They're enemies who just have to be vanquished. And that's a new, that's a broader stripe in American politics than since the, uh, since the Civil War. So we've talked about movements in the past, and you're, you're so astute in reading them and um, understanding them. And I guess by the time January 6th, 2021 rolls around, I guess it's the attorneys around the country that were shocked that, that the law, the rule of law, was only as good as it was recognized that that norms were shattering even observances of the rule of law. But Mm. you know in movements that those things, too, are targets for norms breaking down, actual rule of law. Oh, yeah. I mean, one of the the shocking contradictions for observers is, you know, this conservative movement allegedly supports police. Uh, They didn't support the police who were trying to defend the Capitol. And um, the um, people who were pushing for defunding the police, they were, they were not talking about defunding the Capitol Police. You know, real life um, poses challenges to all sorts of ideologies and exposes lots of contradictions. For those of you who've just joined us on Ask a Leader, my guest is UCI sociology professor David Meyer. And he's also has a joint appointment of political science and planning policy and design. It's, it's called um, it's called uh, planning and urban policy now, planning or, or urban, no urban planning and public policy department now. Urban planning policy. Okay, oh, yeah, I'm right, sorry. Right, right. I should it has have come changed. prepared on that. No, no, no. That's fine. Thank you for that. David is my sole guest, and we're talking about January sixth, as there is now. Well, let's talk about how, with these different movements, the whole different takes on how it's rolling back. There's different ways of characterizing it. So I want for you to associate with the the various parties, but what is the most important label you would assign? What is January 6th? What's the label? What's the the sort of uh, the tagline? So that it's, it's something we carry around and we refer to it the way we would refer to name your catastrophe in our republic. God, what a great idea. Um... I don't know. I mean, I, like, I, like I, I would call the January 6th uh, uh, a Trump insurgency. And I don't, I don't think the ideology or the demands were very clear beyond stopping the Democrats and, and uh, protecting Trump. And I think at least a lot of those people have had second thoughts about getting caught up in it. But if Trump were to vanish from the scene tomorrow, 
all of those strands would still exist that we talked about earlier. You know, these social conservatives, these xenophobes, the white supremacists, the economic conservatives, all like, you know, some of them willing to do extreme things, some of them committed to um, the institutions. You know, they they would all continue if Trump disappeared. And uh, a lot of the threats would continue as well. There's something else that you mentioned that's worth um, spending a little bit of time on here which is your, you, you mentioned the echo chamber. And I mention it every show, actually. <laughs> you mention the echo chamber in every, every day. show because it's so sticky. It's so pernicious. Well, I mean, there's a problem now that we dismiss information that we don't like. And that's not a problem that's exclusive to the right. That's a problem that exists on the left as well. And as a society... And as individuals, we have to find some place to go for news that we don't want to hear. So, I mean, you know, if I go to my dentist and he looks in my mouth and says, there's a problem with your molar, that's not happy news. That's not something I wanted to find out. But um, to go find a civilian, an amateur dentist who's going to tell me, no, 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 don't worry about that, just gargle, would not be looking after my own interests. You have to... Look to find sources who can tell you something that's not happy for you, that's not congenial with your views. And it's very, very easy to avoid that in American life right now. And if you want to go back to your idea of Venn diagrams, the circles of uh, reporting that people in America consume just don't overlap very much anymore. No, actually, David, and I want to, speaking of the Venn diagram, I needed to add one more entity in that, and that's the business model, the business person, the ones that are making bank about stoking division. They're, they're part of this whole Venn diagram. Um, you mean just grifters or? Uh... The grifters, the Boning, what's Boninga in, the, in South Florida that is just, he's just building the model that is also a part of that what you're saying, that infrastructure that will continue to keep creating this wedge and undermining the... Unless, it's, unless it just doesn't sell anymore, unless it doesn't right. become profitable. But it's so, so far it's selling, so I'm putting them right inside that. Oh, yeah, diagram. Dan Bongino. There was a good article on him in The New yes. Yorker. He, yep. He's, I mean, he's an entrepreneur, and, you know, movements are... They're always um, entrepreneurs who grow up around movements who have a more, more commitment to their business than to any kind of cause. You know, you see people selling sodas at a demonstration. It's uh, and the and radio talk show hosts who exploit, you know, antagonisms now are just like a bigger version of uh, soda sellers with huge ripples. Oh my gosh! So, yeah, the bubbles everywhere. <laughs> so, so when we've got the tagline here, the uh, Trump, you said the January sixth Trump insurgency, and you're you're going to use that word instead of coup. I just had to ask while we're on that topic. Um, near us. Uh, you know, Jeff Kopstein, in an earlier thing we did, Jeff Kopstein is a political scientist at UCI, called it a putsch, which I think, um, to me, knowing the little bit of history, it's reminiscent of uh, failed attempts by Mussolini and by Hitler to take power in the 1920s of um, Italy and Germany, respectively. And it's an important reminder that because this one failed doesn't mean that the efforts go away and doesn't mean the next one's going to fail. 
So that's why I'm pulling every single lever. I'm asking your dean. I'm asking, I'm asking everybody around the system. And that's going to be a, sort of like the last question is, what, you know, what are we going to give assignments here for? But it's just that when it's the, the public understanding that the, that was a rehearsal and after rehearsals, like in the 1920s, you have the successful performance. So, uh, I or not, right? Or well, I'm I'm concerned. I'm really, 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 really concerned. Mm-hmm. So then we know about the judiciary is in uh, the where these cases are now being heard by uh, the insurgents charged with, I guess, misdemeanors and felonies. But the judges are making their moment count they're they're saying this was not all right this was a stain on our whole history i mean they're they're taking those opportunities i don't know if you find that that is it's a necessary may not be sufficient kind of framing of where we are right now what the judges are saying well i mean the judges have like have an extraordinarily important job in the united states we value diversity of opinion and we protect even stupid ideas. We do not protect all kinds of conduct. Now, in real life, historically, the United States is staggeringly inconsistent on this, right? So you you should not be punished by your beliefs. You can be punished for your conduct. And, you know, as we look back in history, people have often been published for their beliefs. And sometimes people have gotten away with heinous conduct because they were supported by um, popular opinion in particular areas. That said, you know, you're allowed to think that the election was fixed. It was not. You're, you're allowed to say Trump should be back in office. You're allowed to think whatever you want. You're not allowed to break down barriers and bust windows to get into the Capitol building. And thus far, the judges who've heard cases are not judging the beliefs of the insurgents. They're judging and, and so far, sometimes punishing conduct. And that's exactly what they should be doing. You know, so when, when a judge makes a verdict that's in some way society speaking, and the bizarre thing that we have to confront is it's not just people on the margins who assaulted the Capitol who are defending, you know, the breaking of windows. Um, I think something we want to watch for is what's the counter-narrative? Yes. What's the story that justifies what happened? And there have been a couple of attempts most of, that seem to have failed in the public arena. So the first one was, this is not Trump people. Trump people are good. This was Antifa. That turned out, um, I mean, that was obviously not true from the start, and nobody's been able to sustain um, making that claim, at least not credibly. The second one was, oh, it wasn't so bad. It was just like a tourist day at the Capitol. And the reports that you mentioned at the beginning of the show of people who died the visuals, which are readily accessible online and in mainstream newspapers, undermine that narrative. Um, so what's left? And I think that's what we want to be watching. What's left to defend these folks? Um, irrational exuberance in the fight of, in, in pursuit of uh, rectifying a horrible um, 
wrong? Maybe. I don't know. I, I, I don't know what's going to catch, but they're going to need a counter-narrative, and I don't know what it's going to be. That is duly noted, and we'll, we'll return to that, and I'll return to that all from, from all these shows forward. I mean, my whole coverage with all Ask a Leader, it's going to be that counter-narrative um, for all the way to the election of the midterms in November. So I just wanted to drop a really um, an unsavory uh, detail. It's anecdotal, David, but I think it's something we ought to be aware of, is that I was apprised, I'm not oversharing anybody, anecdotally I was told yesterday that an individual felt like it's time that this person purchase a gun. Mm. Never owned a gun in his life. But he felt like, well, I need to start protecting something. Yeah. Those people creep me out. But so, but the 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 takeaway for me was, guns are hard to buy because they're getting snapped up, and ammo is even harder to get. So while we're all reading our newspapers and we're talking in salons and we're building different kinds of of discussions and publications and things like that, people are nabbing all this all this firearm. So I, I think we need to be aware that there's organizing and acquisitions and all that going on in the subterranean here. Maybe it's not so subterranean. Are you aware of that kind of uh, little uh, marketplace situation? Uh, the, the sale of guns always goes up when a Democrat gets elected. Exactly. President. Exactly. I thought we might get to that point. Um, but now more so, I'm wondering. Um, I, I haven't looked at the I haven't looked at the sales data. Disturbingly, that would not surprise me. And um, I often, it's actually one of the important reasons to um, visibly punish dangerous insurgents is you don't want to encourage your opposition to do the same thing that you've been doing. So when guns are easier to buy, and there's an important Supreme Court case that's coming up this year on exactly that issue. When guns are easier to buy, it's not just people you like who are going to buy more of them. And it's hard to see how that makes the world safer. It's um, an arms race, period. Well, yeah. Also, um, you know, when I've, when I've commented in the media on gun policy, I always get, like, emails from someone, from someone who says something like, you know, I was um, an army ranger, and I learned how to use all this kind of, uh, you know, lots of sophisticated weapons. I can take them apart. I can, you know, I've been trained in X, Y, and Z. I'm, you know, qualified at this level. And uh, you're telling me I can't own a handgun? And the right answer is, well, how many qualifications should you have to have to own um, a handgun, to have to own a a uh, semi-automatic rifle to have to own a, you know, it's like every, when you when you say the bar is so low that anyone can step over it, it's not people like you you should be imagining. All right. How clear is your head on the application form for that? <laughs> how, what kind of baggage you have? Well, I I want this is bringing uh, up a couple of other points here. For those who just joined us, my guest is for the full hour, David Meyer, UCI sociology professor with joint appointments all over the campus, name them, in social sciences. And so there is a power vacuum with this. And as we're talking about political identities here, is or identity politics, the, the movement is imploding without the central figure of the former guy. 
And so, and he's also busy defending his business interests. So he's sort of like he's his bandwidth is kind of like holding holding the the family business together. But I I really was taken by a Washington Post piece yesterday, where uh, I'm going to give her credit. Uh, Monmouth University graduate student Sarah Aniano, she's surveyed that and I'm quoting her where nobody knows who to follow. At one point, it seemed like Q was gospel. Now there's a million different Bibles. And no one knows which one is most accurate. End of quote. That that's a good quote. Um, what 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 what's worth paying attention to is sort of you know like people who people who think that who believe in conspiracies who think an election was stolen who um, see you know uh, nefarious motives everywhere. They're always there. What's different this time is the mainstream Republican Party is unwilling to jettison them, is like working to bank off them. And the idea is, for them, for people who know better, is that this is the way we get back to power. We can't alienate people who would vote for us. And it's going to take moments of courage from people who are not generally aligned with the left in any way. It's going to take people like Liz Cheney, Mitt Romney, people who you may not agree with on many other issues to say, you know, a real Republican Party has to support the republic and has to operate in such a fashion that it can lose sometimes and still continue. And that's kind of the uh, dilemma that we all face now, because the mainstream Republican Party is not willing to take that stance. Well, and they could they could support the Voting Rights Act now moving through, moving from Congress to the uh, Senate, and so. But they're but they're not they're not willing to do that. There isn't there isn't that appetite yet. Well, you can oppose that. You can oppose, you know, making it easier to vote. And still, also want to punish people who don't, who can't win elections, who who um, can't accept a lost election. There's a whole spectrum of offensive behavior here. But that's such a fine line, though you're you're drawing there. I think. I, I don't think that's a fine line. I, I mean, honestly, I, I'm sorry to be uh, difficult, but why? Like, no, not at all. But, but I think that's a I think that's a broad distinction. You know, it's sort of like by the rules that we operate under. We held an election in November uh, 2020, and the loser didn't want to leave office until he was forced to do so. That's new in American politics. That's, you know, I mean, I used to teach American government, and I would say the greatest thing that John Adams did mm-hmm. is after he lost the election, he left office. He said, whoops. You know, the people have spoken, and they made a, you know, I disagree with their choice, but, you know, that's the system we signed on for. And, uh, you know, that's how contemporary democracies are supposed to exist, where you have to live with bad consequences, unwelcome consequences, things you don't like, because the rules didn't go in your favor. But we're past that point. We are now... We have there's an infrastructure that's built in a critical number of states where 
Uh, the certification process is radically altered. And that's what I mean by the fine line. If those moderate Republicans don't want to sign on a vo the new Voting Rights Act, then it will allow that to stand those laws that changed the certification of the election. We are in a new era today. That's something to be that's something to be very, very, very concerned about. So there are rules about voting which are targeted to make it harder for people who look like they might vote for Democrats to vote. That's problem one. Problem two is the counting. When you have somebody running for Secretary of State as uh, Heiss is doing in um, Georgia, under the promise that he'll ensure that subsequent elections come out in favor of his side, that's a scary and unpleasant thing. We're there. We're right there. And in Arizona and, and Pennsylvania. And also where the state legislature itself, and in most states, the, state the composition of the state legislature is heavily affected by gerrymandering, is going to step in and oversee election results that they don't like. That's a scary, that's a scary condition. And we're there. We're there. And it's a step we are in. We, that what they say, that bell has been rung. And uh, so that's why I am calling alarm. And if we have the the very even handed, the very calm and well-researched UCI law school professor Rick Hassan, if he is really at his wits ends, then that folks, mm. that is like the ultimate sort of indication of how dire things are. So I am going to move in. Speaking of dire is the complicity of media to make, the, just to take some of these edges off. It's driving me nuts. And I'm going to call out the National Public Radio's recurrent sorts of abdications of labeling this for the kind of the extreme condition that it has. And yesterday, I heard another opportunity where the reporter is interviewing Congressman Jason Crow, Democrat of Colorado, and Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger, who is a Democrat in Virginia, Congresswoman Virginia. Those two used their previous spy and military training. And so the reporter, the anchor was asking them, and she said, well, not to make it uh, too much of a threat, uh, not to overstate the threat. And Jason Crow came right back. He says, you cannot overstate this mm. threat. So for NPR to knock off the edges and, you know, and wait until it, it, the disaster is passed and it's, things have collapsed. And then the other abdication was making light of Alan Hofstetter, I'm just, I don't mean to amplify him by mentioning his first and last name, but covering him, he's an Orange County January Sixer, and he had been prevailing at all of the Board of Supervisor meetings about denying the pandemic, mm -hmm. and he, he went pro with appearing at January 6th. He's, I'm, I don't know to the extent he was playing, but he was there, and he, I believe he went inside, but, but they... NPR choose to, to cover the kind of a t take his yoga portfolio and make a sort of a joke out of, well, this is yoga in January 6th insurrection kind of membership. It was just um, and so I want you now. I'm ah. that's that's enough complicity I can bring up. So I want to know what uh, you have to say about the role of media to call this as it's as the threat actually is to the intensity it's, that is warranted. 
I I don't know about the yoga insurgent that you're discussing. I didn't hear that story. That was in July. That said, I think that they're balancing norms in mainstream media where if you quote one side, you quote the other side, and you let them speak for themselves. And that balancing norm doesn't work in a moment of uh, great asymmetry. And in real life, the Republican Party has had an insurgent faction that is not concerned with truth and not concerned with preserving the institutions for a long time, for like the better part of the last decade, maybe more. And media have been reluctant to report on that because it seems unfair and skewed. And there's a tension. And, you know, I can whine about like I'd want the media coverage to be better. I've always whined about wanting the media coverage to be better. There's a question of, you know, we have to commit to reporting on the truth. So what I, I did, I just want for you to know, David, and for listeners to know, I followed up. I wrote to the, I don't ever at NPR reporters and, and anchors. I go straight to their producers on their own website. I wanted to let them know I heard it. And I, and I said, and Jason Crow heard it. I mean, he, he took her. He, you know, he answered it, sort of took her to task right in the moment, which was, you know, him doing their job in a way, you know, framing it appropriately. So, um, so yeah, we, we all, we have to follow, we have to call them on that. And I, I like that you're talking about that in, there's an asymmetry in this insurgency. So. Uh, it sounds so academic, geeky. Asymmetry means it's uneven and but not, it's true, not mirror image. Not one side is the same as the other from the other side. But don't you think that that kind of both sidism is a bit infantilizing um i think it's deceptive and i i think there's a radical difference between people who have politics you don't like and people who are opposed to you know maintaining um some sort of democratic process in the united states and i think we get confused dealing with it so the secretary of state in georgia brad raffensperger is a very conservative Republican who did his job correctly. And he's not your friend if you're a Joe Biden supporter or a Democrat. He's not going to vote your way on most things, but he's going to do his job, you know, and count the votes accurately. And we have to learn to recognize that people we respect and ally with are not going to agree with us all the time, and that people who do things we need to do to maintain a democratic government in the United States or make a democratic government in the United States are not going to be our friends on all sorts of other issues. So Liz Cheney, I mean a very visible, courageous example of someone who's standing up for democratic processes in this moment does not support the Voting Rights Act that you're you're discussing, um, will not agree with you on 35 other issues, and will stand up against your position on 35 or 40 other issues. But she's interested in preserving a, a system of democratic accountability. And we have to learn how to take that gain 
without expecting it to signal something more about Cheney or um, Raffensperger or any of the other few scattered institutional Republicans who sometimes take a stance for the Republic for the for the Democratic Republic of the United States. So, I mean, you probably saw in the paper the last couple of days, Dan Crenshaw, who is a very conservative Republican from Texas, Texas. Yeah. has been attacking Marjorie Taylor Greene, wow. who is a lunatic from Georgia, also in the Republican Party. And that's the kind of accounting that the Republican Party has to do. And... Um, the leadership of the party thus far has said, well, we need everybody in order to win elections, in order to get back power in Congress. And that's kind of like the identity Rorschach for the entire party. You know, do you want to be just a ridiculous, just a very, very conservative party, or do you want to be, you know, embrace a lunatic fringe? And that's asymmetrical. Well, the, what's more asymmetrical is lots of these Republicans you're mentioning are going to get primaried and they're they're on their way out or they're resigning like Adam Hitzinger. So it's um, it's it's very it's like a it's a slope. It's a steep slope. So there's parting shots with everybody's role. We know that there will be an address that President Biden and Vice President Harris will be giving. I'm not sure exactly when I heard the announcement, but I didn't know when it will be. So there's what you want to see them pitch, what you want to see yourself do, what you want to see your faculty and your administration all the way throughout the UC system, because this is an elite academic institution that I will heap lots of responsibilities on where we're met with such a dire situation. And then so there's the institution, there's the national leadership, and there's you. So I don't know which one you want to take up first. (laughs) Um, I don't know the right answer to this. I, I, I think, this is your um, moment, man. I, I think um, my disposition and my job is to encourage people to learn real facts and to listen to news, even when it doesn't when it doesn't align with what they want to hear. And um, that means taking the actions and the beliefs of the insurgents seriously and responding to their actions, responding to crimes with, you know, as crimes. Um, what do I want to see the world do? That's not, a very good, that's not a very good answer. You need a better answer. I think that there's like an ongoing quest for truth that we all have to sign on to. And that includes telling the truth about January 6th and meeting out consequences. It includes making compromises and cooperating with people who are willing to express an acceptance of real facts and truth, even if they don't come down the same issues as as we do, and drawing a sharp line between ourselves and people who are not willing to accept bad news or, you know, um, real facts and truth. And that's, that's tough. You know, that means that Liz Cheney or Representative Crenshaw are doing the right thing in trying to distance themselves from Marjorie Taylor Greene, even though she's on their side, ostensibly on their side politically. And it also means looking at 
how those battles that take place nationally are playing out again locally in debates about masks and debates about mandates and debates about school boards. You know, like school board elections are historically not politicized. I mean, they're like, oh, you know this, this woman has been going to meetings for two years and she really cares about the kids. You may not even know her party affiliation. You vote for her based on what she said in those meetings over the last two years. That's not the way it is anymore. Right. That's the farm team for either insurgents to operate locally and go nationally. It's a farm team for new candidates that are going to work their way up through the electoral process. So that, that, yeah. it's a, it's a, that is the new day. We, that bell is not being unrung either. There's a, a massive effort to defend the pedagogy. So that, that, and that's working. It's disruptive. It's, it's invading the bandwidth. Mm. When we just want to, you know, have publicly funded education do its job. So that's, that's working. So what your role is, what do you want to hear President Biden and Vice President Harris say to the nation? They, they are addressing January 6th on the year later. So what, what has to be said? If I were writing Biden's speech, I would say we live in a broad and diverse country where everybody doesn't like the same things or believe the same things except for a respect for our institutions and our democratic processes. And no one should be punished for disagreeing with me or disagreeing with another, with someone else. However, when people seek to subvert those institutional processes and when they do violence or threaten violence to individuals, then we have to draw a sharp line and protect the integrity of the system. And that's what my administration is going to do. I hope that if I were sitting down with it, I'd come up with more, with uh, sharper uh, lines of argument and more uh, appealing catchphrases. But I think that's the story that they've got to tell from the position they're in as president, you know, as president and vice president of the United States. We respect the system. We respect that we have to serve people who didn't vote for us. And actually, Biden, an old-line politician, has always done this. He's always, like, gone out to meetings where people don't like him and listened to them and accepted that people are going to, like, say nasty things to him. That's kind of the game you're in if you go into politics. And what was really different about Trump than his predecessors is all of the predecessors made at least a show of trying to gain the support and serve the people who didn't like them and didn't want them to be president. Now, I'm not saying Barack Obama or George W. Bush were particularly successful at doing it, but they tried, and they tried visibly to gain the attention and to serve the interests of people who didn't like them. And Trump didn't do that. And... There's a whole stream of American life which is cheering him on for not doing that and saying the rest of us shouldn't do that also. That norm was broken and obliterated. And Biden is trying to restore it, and I don't think he's been tremendously successful so far. Well, as as Harry Shearer said on the show last week, get off TV. But he's going to go right back on it. Let's hope that all the hands are on deck so there is a superbly pithy message to shore up 
this erosion around us. So what's going to be upcoming, uh, this ongoing project where faculty are working on this writing exercise, you along with Sarah Goodman, Matt Beckman, and Tony Smith, do you want to talk about how people can follow that? I, I don't know how people can follow it. You know more about it than I do. Our dean, who's a great dean, said, you know, uh, Bill Maurer said, well, there are people who uh, study this stuff, you know, in our department who actually know stuff in our School of Social Sciences. So let's get them to talk about what they know about the insurgency and what has to happen next. And I didn't even know the list of the people who were asked to contribute. For me, the thing that I think is most important is how we make sense of and maintain the memory of this attempt to overthrow the government in the United States. And that means getting a true story out, getting this true story into the textbooks, not like glossed over, and holding people accountable. And it seems very, very clear that the judges are willing to hold accountable somebody who puts his feet on Nancy Pelosi's desk or carries the Confederate flag, uh, uses the Confederate flag to um, break a window. But it's not clear that the people who egged them on are going to be held accountable in any way. That is the concern that, like, Rick Hassan actually tweeted that, that, you know, and others, that it's usually very clear where the Department of Justice is operating, and they're not seeing evidence that that is happening, that they're moving into that, and people are watching the clock ticking. So uh, really astute observers are pretty rattled that necessary step taking. There's no evidence that it's being taken. So that's, uh, folks, this, uh, the bell is not only you can't unring the bell, but the bell's getting louder. How about that? So those takeaways, I didn't get a chance to ask you about your students. I'm going to leave that. We'll check in with you. Let's do this in before the primary in California in June. Let's do this, if you will. We'll take another measure of where we are Mm -hmm. and what your students, we didn't get a chance to ask about them as we're closing on the show today. So um, can you do that? Sure. Sure. We've got everybody listening to commit to this. At least maybe not quite quarterly, but close to finish off this year because I think it's going to be time to put on a competition belt because it's going to be so much turbulence. So, well, David Meyer, Thank you so much for being on Ask a Leader today. Thank you, Claudia. It's good to talk with you. Thank you. So that was my guest, David Meyer, who is Professor of Sociology at UCI. And so uh, I really appreciate it. I'm going to wish you a Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. Okay, thank you. Well, that's my wrap. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and please stay busy.